The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Alejandro Mundes, is a social worker and theologian. He's the founder of Immigrant Hope, a nonprofit organization affiliated with the Evangelical Free Church of America, and devoted to equipping churches to provide immigrants with the hope of the gospel, help finding a path to legal residency, and a home in a church that cares for their needs. His new book is Embracing the New Samaria, Opening Our Eyes to Our Multi-Ethnic Future. A review of the book appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. Alejandro Mondes, welcome to Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you, Rabbi. You can call me Alex. Alex, it is. Let's start with, I want to unpack the title of your book, Embracing the New Samaria. What is the New Samaria? Ever since I was uh, working on my master's in social work, I was doing a lot of work on terms of demographics, and they started back in the 80s documenting this tipping point that was happening, that is minority becoming majority. And so for the most part, for me, that Samaria is the immigrant ethnic majority happening, but it's a little bit more than that. As far as I'm concerned, who haven't we reached as a movement? You know, I think there's pockets of people that uh, if they're interested in Christ, we need to be reaching out to them. Neighborhoods are changing. And, and for me, really, Rabbi, it's not even that. I mean, because like I have uh, uh, North Dakota is, is such a homogeneous group, but my mother-in-law, who was in a, a church that was transitioning, kept telling me that there were strangers coming. And of course, I'm thinking African-American, Hispanic. I get there, and they're strangers, all right. They're still Nordic, but they're wearing shorts, sandals, earrings, and tattoos. <laughs> so for me, Samaria is, who aren't we reaching? And, and, and that's really where the heart of it is for me. Yes, the demographic tipping point, the tip of the spear certainly is eth- ethnics and immigrants, but uh, it includes anybody that's being left out that would be interested in Christ. You know, when in the book, right in the very beginning of the book, you talk about your evangelical family and you sort of, th- this is what you say, my evangelical family, specifically those who are part of the majority culture, and you want to help them transcend the status quo by loving and reaching their neighbors in the margins, as God has called us to do. So when you say majority culture, you're talking about what you just said, Nordic, is that it? I mean, white people? Uh, you know, I hate to call it Anglo because it's not Anglo. I hate to call it majority culture because majority can change. So I have a hard time putting my hand around that. But whoever is the majority of where your community is, 
Ah, okay. That's a good way of putting it. Because, I mean, you do use the word majority culture. You know, when I think of majority culture, I think Christian. I mean, whether I, I don't make the distinction between uh, different denominations of Christians or Hispanic Christians or African-American Christians or Nordic Christians or yeah. <laughs> this is going to sound silly, but you're all just Christians to me. Uh, when I first moved to uh, Tennessee, the bookstores made big distinctions between Christians and Catholics, yeah. and they would have a huge Christian section, so it was labeled that way, and a small Catholic section and a tiny little Mormon section. And I, I when I first moved here, I didn't understand it because it seemed to me they were all Christians, but when I asked about it at the bookstore, they said, oh, absolutely not. There are Christians, and then there's Catholics. They're, they're a different thing altogether. So my bias as a minority is that the majority is Christians. And, I, I, and while I know that the demographic trends are moving toward a time in the not-too-distant future where white Americans are going to be a, one minority among others, I, I wonder if your work could speak not only to Christians who belong to various minorities, but minorities like Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, secularists, the spiritual but not religious. It seems to me there's something in embracing the new Samaria that speaks to all of those minority groups. Does that make sense to you when you wrote the book or when you think about the book now that it's out? It makes a lot of sense. You know, they say that 87 or 90 percent of America is Christian. And, you know, I'm a firm believer in that we ought not to be throwing rocks. So I grew up Catholic. I, I know what you're saying, but people aren't saved by knowing what's wrong. They're no, saved by knowing who's right, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And that's really the only way I can reduce it to its irreducible core. Uh, people that put their faith in him for their salvation. And I'll tell you right now, there's evangelicals that don't meet that mark, and there's Catholics who do reach that mark, and the same goes for Jews and and anybody else, frankly. I mean, uh, Romans 1.16 is powerful for me. It says, uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for your salvation for the Jew and for the Gentile. Uh, in the book, the whole issue I started there was with the 12 disciples who uh, had a problem with Samaritans, but Jesus didn't. He sat down, had a 15, 20, 30-minute conversation, and the disciples are walking out of the city that uh, they're not even supposed to associate with. And the woman leaves, and while they came with chips, bacon, <laughs> chorizo, uh, but no people, here comes a woman who'd only been a believer in Christ for a few minutes, and she's bringing out all these people to know who he is. By a simple testimony, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. And the point in there wasn't that uh, he knew what her sin was, as much as these people looked at her as a transformed person, someone who had had a personal encounter. Um, so for me, I kind of chuckle at that a little bit because these are guys that should have known better. <laughs> well, the, the apostles don't seem to know what they're doing very well in the, in the gospel. Oh, that gives me comfort, personally. Right, right, right. They, they're hanging out with Jesus, and they haven't got a clue. I mean, right. that, you know, he says to them, uh, who, do you, who do you say I am? And they're not too sure. Yeah. Uh, and even when uh, 
you know, Peter gets it. I don't think Peter ever really gets it. Well, but the way the way comfortable with are the uncomfortable ones are those who are so absolutely sure of everything. Sure, right. But you're still saying, you know, I mean, I understand that anyone, Jew, Muslim, Hindu, secularist, humanist, can can come to know Christ. Right. But then they're no longer a Jew, a Hindu, you know, from the way Judaism would define itself, uh, there's no room for um, accepting Jesus as your Lord and Savior and still maintaining your fidelity to the Jewish past, well, which is an alternative. Judaism, there's all variations of it. Uh, there's even uh, Messianic Christians. But I do know what you mean. I mean, uh, Christianity isn't that rock solid, all in lockstep. And I imagine well, that's that true. would be true for Jews. Sure, and, sure, that that that's absolutely true. But what I'm what I'm getting from the book, and and just even listening to you uh, in this conversation, is there room for, is is there in a sense salvation outside the church? You know, is there when Jesus says, "Nobody gets to the Father except through me." Is that your position also, or are there, you know, my father's yeah. house has many mansions, well, and there's think... there's ways for everyone to get there in their own path on their own path? Well, there is no salvation in church. <laughs> uh, well, I didn't mean the literal church, but okay. <laughs> I, I know, I I know, but I wanted to make that clear. And for me, it's a, it's about a relationship with Christ, um, and, you know, it's uh, for me very experiential. Uh, but I think that there has to be some uh, abstract elements. And so, yeah, I do believe that the scriptures, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and life, no one comes to me but by the Father. Um, if he is the creator, and I believe he is, if he sends his son and raises him from the dead, that gives him a little bit of say. <laughs> that doesn't mean he doesn't love the whole world. That doesn't mean that he doesn't care about all people's suffering, but there is a claim that he has as the creator that is different from other philosophies of how to live your life. Yeah, you know, I mean, I appreciate your honesty. Um, it's not surprising when the book is quite straightforward. You know, as someone who does not accept Jesus that way, um, we've got a, a fairly large divide. Uh, let me let me tell you a quick story. I, I'll do it briefly, so it will sure. be quick. I was uh, leading an interfaith group in Israel a number of years ago, and we were visiting the garden tomb that is run by the Anglican Church. And it's where they claim uh, Jesus was buried. And, you know, we're just going through the tour, and there's an Anglican guide, and he is very sure that there's only one, it's not only that Jesus is the only way to, to reach God, but Anglican Christianity is the only way to reach God, and that everything else is a false religion, even if it claims to be Christian. And that was insulting to our group. We were interfaith. We were made up of all different kinds of people. And he and I got into an altercation, and I didn't want to ruin it for everybody else. So I left the group. I went and sat and meditated in the garden. I'd been there before. It's a really gorgeous place. And I'm sitting in meditation, and another guide comes over to me. And she says she, she gives me or she poses to me what I've heard described as C.S. Lewis's trilemma. And she says, when Jesus says, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is he lying? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the Lord? And I mean, that that's C.S. Lewis came up with that. It's supposed to be a, a pretty decent way of getting people to say, well, how could Jesus be lying? And Jesus can't be a lunatic, so Jesus must be Lord. I responded, I reject those three possibilities, and I have a fourth. And she was very nice, and she said, what is it? And I said, I think Jesus was a God-intoxicated Jewish mystic who, <laughs> when he says, no one gets to the Father except through me, he's not talking about himself, the ego the ego Jesus, the the, the human Jesus. He's talking about the mind of Christ. He's talking about Christ consciousness. He's talking about an awakened mind and not Jesus himself. Mm -hmm. And that the only way to get to the divine is to achieve that state of mind. Like Jesus says, you can do even greater things than, than I. What's your sense of, of understanding Jesus as one expression of Christ consciousness or what the Buddhists will call Buddha mind? You know, or, you know, I'm trying to. I'm, I, I keep yeah. trying to lift this out of a Christian-only setting and bring it to something more universal. But it, I, it just be my. It may just be my thing. Well, let me first. Uh, I I love C.S. Lewis, and I appreciate what he's saying. I think he's trying to bring it down to a something that's understandable to people. I I also love ecumenical relationships. Uh, I think that God certainly can be expressed in other by other people's views but i i have a hard time when a religion starts saying a, a, a denomination saying mine is the truth i mean i've been to israel also i know that there's at least two or three other places where they say jesus is buried frankly i'm not going to go light a candle at any one of them uh, <laughs> that's that's not where i'm going that's not the hill i'm going to die on and, um, you know, the thing that I think is important for us to remember is that God is great. And he doesn't need me to fight for him. Uh, you know, I like that place, I think it was Gideon, where he's told a sec, you know, to burn the Ashroth or something like that. And he burns his father's Ashroth and then uses it as the, put the oxen for sacrifice. And, and then the, in the morning, the city people come and they're going to really go and get this guy and kill him. And, and the father who owned the, the idol said, if that is God, he can defend himself. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Frankly, I do believe that God is real. He is noble. I believe he's propositional in that he has declared himself. I do believe that the miracles and uh many of the prophecies can speak for themselves, but it's faith, isn't it? There is that element in which people are required to declare where they stand and what they believe. And I'm not real hit on people drawing lines in the sand. 
and saying this is 100% absolute. Now, I will do that very few places, but one of them is where Jesus is God the Father, and, and there is a Father, and there is a Spirit, and I have to believe that he died for my sins. One of my favorite movies is Rudy. He wants to be on the Notre Dame football team, and it's not working out for him, and every year he goes and he, he prays, and finally this Monsignor comes out and he starts arguing with the Monsignor, saying, hey, you know everything. Why, why isn't God letting me in? And, and the priest says, "There's after all my years of studying theology, I've come to the conclusion of two things. There is a God, and I'm not him. Those things are certain for me also. But I yeah. think that there are yeah. some things that are propositional and clear. There is a God creator, because we didn't come from random nothing. And I believe that he has declared himself, but I don't need to go rub that in anybody's face, because God can defend himself. What he has sent me here, and I believe this for me, is to be his representative of love, compassion, service, but not his executioner of any of his children. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I've been in settings in my hometown where it was made clear to me that that uh, I, I will, you know, burn in hell for all eternity because I haven't accepted Jesus the way one denomination or another of Christianity has accepted Jesus. So, so I, I let, let let's switch topics a little bit. Uh, you know, you write about you you want people to see one another as God sees them. And I love that idea, but I'm curious to know how you think God sees people. I mean, does yeah, I mean, does God make a distinction between people based on race or ethnicity or gender or well, you know, religion or how, how does God see well, humanity? Uh, so we're all made in the image of, of God. That is something that is sacred, foundational, and if anything, that should give all of us a moment of pause before we start throwing rocks or being mean, ugly, or anything like that to each other. So, so before you go any further, what, what does that mean to you that we're made in the image of God? I think, uh, obviously, that doesn't mean characteristics, because men and women are different. And I don't think that race was ever in God's mind, because you don't see that necessarily in the scriptures. The Hebrews never distinguished between different races. I mean, obviously, there were there were Ethiopians that were Jewish, but they, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch was never called, oh, he's the black guy. Uh, when I think of how God thinks about us, I think about Revelation chapter 7, where it's a vision of the throne room of God, and they're all around the throne, and he says, from different nations uh, and, uh, you know, different languages, uh, he never talks about uh, gender. He doesn't talk about race. Um, it's just people that are standing before God. And it's not broken down into the, the different segments that we break it down to. It is interesting to me. It really, really is, Ron. I mean, I've thought about this because, you know, uh, there's, God just does see us differently than we do. Um, and I'm okay with not totally understanding everything that he sees, but I do know that he loves you as much as he loves me. And, and uh, 
while Israel may be the apple of God's eye, and he never takes that back, he still prayed for the others in John chapter 17, and he calls them his own also. So I think we try to understand God by paradigms that we set up that are, that are not always crystal clear, and I'm okay with that abstraction. Uh, in fact, I'm fascinated by it. If, if God can see us all together and, and isn't saying, I like these guys more than these guys, that's actually exciting. And, and it draws me in to want to know other people, uh, to, to want to experience what they see of God. Because I'm a firm believer that different cultures experience, demonstrate a different facet about God. I, I think I even shared that in the book. I mean, uh, I was just at an, a Native American Indian conference, and it's interesting how they saw so many things similar to Hispanics. You know, there's this sort of God consciousness, which isn't necessarily Jesus. It's there's this sense of God. There's different, you know, African Americans have quite a soulish ability. Um, Asians have this honor for parents, of course. You have to be careful not to really typeset people, because not all Hispanics are the same. But there is an element in which women and men see different facets of God. And so for me, it's it's really intriguing to get to know other people and how they see God and culture and life. But that doesn't that doesn't shy me away from saying there is one way to God and that Jesus is the savior. And I also believe that he's drawing all people to himself. And so people who say there is one way aren't wrong. And to be exclusive saying he's not your God is something that I think we need to be very, very careful with. And so there's a little balance here if you're noticing, Rami. I, I do believe that God is drawing people to himself and that God is Jesus, the Father and the Holy Spirit. But we need to hold that with a little bit of um, tension because he's the one that's drawing them and he will. So my sense is, um, so let me, let me just go with that, with that, uh, just the way you, you, you know, said it, God is drawing us to the divine. When I look at, let's say, early, early Christianity, St. Paul stuff, um, specifically, I'm thinking of Galatians 3.28, mm -hmm. where Paul says, because not everyone's going to know that quote, where Paul says, um, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male or female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, that the, the, the realization of Christ Jesus, now I would I would say it's Christ consciousness or Buddha mind or whatever, but the realization of Christ Jesus, to use the language of Galatians, strips away all these divisions that that humans have created. It seems to me that's the way God sees the human being as neither uh, Jew or Greek, meaning neither Jew or Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or secularist. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. All those binaries disappear when God looks at us. We impose those on one another 
for, I don't know, you could maybe come up with sociological, psychological reasons, but the closer we get to God, the less we make these distinctions. This is my estimation. When you're talking about getting Christians to embrace even other Christians of different ethnicities and races yeah. Yeah. and how difficult that is, it seems to me it's a violation, not what you're saying, but the difficulty itself violates what Paul is saying. Why is it so hard for people, you think, Christians, let's keep it right there, why is it so hard for Christians whose uh, primary text tells them to get beyond these binaries to, in fact, get beyond the binaries? Well, I think uh, you've got to, I want to go back to what you're saying. It's not this, it's not that. I think um, what we're talking about is a separation that, uh, so for example, Ephesians and Galatians may have been written at the same time and sent to different places. But what you're looking at in these books is when it's saying he's broken the wall of separation. Uh, and you understand what that means coming out of temple vernacular. But you also know the temple had a temple for women, a court of women, a court of the Gentiles. And I think what he's making an allusion to there is, is that we're all his children. Now, he's, yeah, not saying, right. he's not talking about the force. He's talking about in terms of Judaic uh, dichotomies, where there were people that seemed to be more favored. So there was the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women. And each one of these was a sort of degree of separation. What he's talking about is in terms of we're all um, equally valuable in the sight of God. And we're talking in terms of Judaic Christianity. I don't, I don't see that as uh, speaking about the force or Buddha or these others. It's a Judeo-Christian dichotomy that God created, in, uh, and it's called the mystery in the book of Ephesians. And initially, it was set up to help people learn what it looks like to have a relationship with God. So Israel was the city up on a hill. And what God is saying, that's all gone now. I'm here, and we're one. But that's not saying... Christianity, Judeo-Christianity is the same as all these others. That's the way I take it. Yeah, no, I, I think I think in a, putting the text in its historical context, that, that makes a lot of sense. I was trying to, it seems to me that the Gospels speak beyond their historical setting, and when you lift it out, I wanted to see a greater universalism. Well, I mean, but that's, you, that's my passion. Universalism, okay? Um, God loves the world, period. But and, he's still going to send some of us to hell. Well, there's going to be a lot of people who are in evangelical churches that are going to go to hell, well, too. Yeah, I'm just saying, he doesn't love us that much. <laughs> I mean, my mom well, loves me, I'll and she you, doesn't want me to go, and how much go to hell. Us. Let me tell you how much he loves us. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And you know, you read the Gospels, and the only people that Jesus had a hard time with were the religious leaders. Uh, the disciples tried to even keep children away from him and and uh, the the Samaritans away from him. There is a sense in which God is drawing all people to himself and he loves all people and but he does get very, very irritated 
when people make artificial separations between him. But it has to be understood that he does have um, a provision for eternal life that he's given. So if we, we don't want to say that's not love, it is love. But if we want to reject that, that's our choice. Yeah, no, I get it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm just giving you a hard time, I guess. Oh, give I, it to me. One, I, one of, we're going to have to live by the sword, you die by the sword. Right. You know, one, I get it. I get we're going to have to wrap this up. But I'm sure you're familiar with Rob Bell. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm a fan of, of his work. And in his book, Love Wins, he I think it's that book, he talks about uh, his problem with the idea of hell is he has no problem that uh, Adolf Hitler is burning in hell for all eternity. His problem is that Mahatma Gandhi is burning right next to him because neither one of them accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior. But we're going to have to leave that discussion to another time. Our guest today, Alex Mondes, is the founder of Immigrant Hope and author of Embracing the New Samaria, Opening Our Eyes to Our Multi-Ethnic Future. A review of the book appears in the July-August issue of Spirituality and Health magazine. You can learn more about Alejandro's work on his website, immigranthope.org. Alex, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health podcast. Thank you, Raymond. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health Podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano, and our executive producer is Mallory Corbin. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. We spend a third of our lives sleeping and dreaming, yet most of us have no idea what goes on during that time. I'm Kelly Sullivan Walden, and as a dream expert and best-selling author, I'm here to empower you to mine the gold from your nighttime dreams. Join me on the Kelly Sullivan Walden Show, part of the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network, available wherever you get your podcasts. Until we meet again. Don't take your dreams lying down.